and thank you for joining us on Giving Voice to Depression. I'm Bridget. And I'm Terry. More than 350 million people worldwide suffer from depression, but you do not have to have it yourself to be affected by it. Its prevalence pretty much guarantees that someone you care about battles its darkness. This podcast tries to shine some light into that darkness. We're not experts and we're not therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and who are committed to encouraging healthy, healing conversations about mental illness. Season three of this podcast is sponsored by the Charles E. Kubley Foundation, which supports efforts to reduce the stigma of mental illness. We are solely responsible for podcast content. Hey, Terry. Hello, Bridgie. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. You? Good. I'm excited to, today we have, um, well, you know how we begin every episode that we say you don't have to have depression yourself to be affected by it? Mm-hmm. Just heard it. Yep. <laughs> today's episode is one way that, that that becomes true. And it's a story of a woman named Chris who has depression and has since she was in middle school. And her boyfriend, Chris, Chris with a C, um, who does not have depression himself, but has learned a lot about it over yep. the years with Chris. Yep. And they're sharing their story. Nice. So that same name thing sounds a little bit confusing when it's in writing or when you just say it, but it'll be real clear because one's male, one's female. Right. So here are Chris and Chris giving their voice to depression. You can't really talk to Chris about her depression without being reminded of the power of stigma. From when I was a kid, I remember, you know how like typical doctor questions are like, are you feeling sad or down lately? Um, And I remember my father telling me from when I was young to always answer no to that question. Huh. So that no one would ever really know about what you're feeling. Like, they don't need to know into your personal business. Um, And I was like, okay. So from the – so I've been doing that my whole life. So she couldn't talk to her doctor. When I realized I had depression, I was really young. I was about 12. And it was something that I never – really talked about in my home. I never, we never said anything to this day. They're kind they're, they're kind of people that feel the stigma sometimes. Hmm. Um, not really understanding what it is I do. And if your own parents don't understand, well, what are the chances your boss will? I have never felt comfortable telling any of my employers that I have depression for like the fear of them not hiring me, me being a complication. Mm-hmm. Or them considering that I am unreliable. If I feel like it's always easier to just kind of not talk about it. Do you think that keeping it secret has limited your ability to get the help and support you might need? I I definitely think so. I think that because I have almost a fear, uh, though fear seems like too strong of a word, for talking about it, that when it comes to seeking help, Um, I suddenly feel weak or that I can't handle my illness. And so... Because you think other people see it that way. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's boyfriend Chris. See, told you it'd be easy to tell him apart. I think because it's so different from uh, quote-unquote like physical illness, like you go to the doctor and they diagnose, people can see that you are sick, people can see that you have this illness... And they give you medicine and you get better. And that's kind of like what we as as a society have accepted as illness. But when it comes to depression and a lot of other mental health um, conditions, it almost feels like it's someone's opinion. 
like your depression is the opinion of this therapist that you saw. And so it's not valid. Right. And it's, it's easy for someone to look and say, Oh, well, she probably just thinks that she has depression or she's using it as a cop out for this, or, you know, there's no way to really know. I think at least for me, whether people are actually thinking that or whether I just think that they're thinking that doesn't necessarily matter. And that could be an example of self-stigma when we internalize public discrimination and we can make decisions and suffer some pretty negative consequences as a result. So, Chris, how do you think your life might have been different if when you first started experiencing symptoms of depression and went to the doctor, your parents had said, tell the doctor everything. Let's get to the bottom of this. I think I wouldn't feel as filled with guilt, like filled with guilt, filled with um, this need to prove myself. I would, I feel, actually, I think I would just, I would accept my depression as what it is. Right now, I don't accept my depression as what it is. I constantly keep putting myself down for not being stronger than the depression. And I think that if I had been in an environment that accepted mental, like my illness as an illness and not as just a teenager being a teenager, I think I would now in my current life here at 22, I would feel stronger with my depression rather than weaker because I have it. Can you do that for yourself now? Can I? Is there an opportunity to do a course correction at this age? Or do you just kind of feel stuck in it? Um, I think I feel sort of stuck in it, but I have this small hope that I'm wrong. I think it would have been much easier, you know, when you were 12 to be able to, like, say, okay, here we are at the beginning. We're at stage one. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like we're at stage three. And so, you know, what it takes to reverse something at stage three is a lot more than what it is at stage one. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the very many reasons that we are constantly advocating for starting the conversation about mental health and starting it early. If a child or teen in your life says something's just not right, or you notice symptoms of depression, Address it at what Chris calls stage one. No one benefits from waiting. Fortunately, in her early 20s now, Chris has someone she can be honest with about her mental health struggles. I tend to call Chris for sure um, whenever anything, whenever any of it starts. Chris, you're obviously the one in the trenches with her. And you said you don't have depression yourself. So I'm wondering how you know what to do. Are you guessing correctly? Are you working this out together? Have you had some education? Uh, no, pretty much flying by the seat of our pants. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've, uh, we've been dating for two years, just over two years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely got pretty up close and personal with the depression very early on. I would say probably within the first two, three months. It was it was all new to me, um, and so it's certainly been a steep learning curve. And I would in no way say that I know all of the answers. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard to say, like overall, this would be good for everyone. Um, right. But I think trust is a lot of it. And if the person who is having a depressive episode or spell doesn't trust you, then then nothing you do is going to help and you just need to walk away. Um, but I think if, if they do have that trust and you have that relationship, then doing whatever you can that doesn't involve the depression. So whether it's, 
you know, distracting them from it by sometimes we'll try and do word games where mm-hmm. having or helping with a crossword or a Sudoku or something that forces her brain to focus on something other than the depression. Because the most important thing in that moment is to get through that moment. Mm-hmm. And by talking about it, you just repeat the moment. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask each of you, and from your different perspectives, what do you think is the least understood or most misunderstood aspect of depression? I think I would say the debilitation part of it. There's a difference between, oh, I'm tired, I don't want to get out of bed, and I can't get out of bed. Um, it's, It's not that it's sadness. It's this feeling of, like, almost even hopelessness, too. The world is bleak. And it's not, it's not just that I'm sad, so much more than that, and that the weight of the world kind of feels like it's being pressed up against me and not letting me move. Like, yes, I'm fully aware that I have muscles and I know how to walk and I know how to get up, but I just, I can't. It is almost a physical weight. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's oftentimes how Chris has described it, is that she... She feels like if she's lying down in bed, she feels like something is pressing a down on her chest. Mm-hmm. Just is, you know, forcing her down. And what have you learned, boyfriend Chris? What do you know now that you didn't know, that you didn't understand before you got this up close and personal education on depression? I think one of the one of the common misunderstandings is that the depression is focused on a specific event that happened. And for some people it is, whether it's the death of a family member or maybe it's the stress of an exam or something, but that they're only feeling depressed when it's about that issue. What I've come to realize is that it's so much more than that. And while something like that may be the basis of it, there are times when, you know, Chris has been triggered by something that has nothing to do with anything that is necessarily sad or not. It it could be something very minute and that, the depression is kind of an everyday thing, and some days are better than others. And there's something else he's learned that's important in any relationship, but certainly one involving an illness. In order to support someone else, you have to have your own support system, I think is incredibly important um, and something that can often get lost in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to like... Just because you are helping someone who has depression, who needs you, doesn't mean that you shouldn't also take care of yourself. Right. And when I asked if they had anything else they wanted to say before we ended our conversation, female Chris said this. You have to really do what is best for you. And how are you going to feel? How are you going to get to your better place? How are you going to feel safe enough to continue living? Because continue living because the whole point is it's worth being alive like I've been there I've not wanted to be alive and I'm and 10 years later here I am and I'm kind of happy that I kept living and I think that through the struggle of the stigma and having to try and explain to everybody what who what it is that you need and what it is you're going through you have to really remember that it's about you your safety and your you are always worth it. And no one can tell you that you're not or make you or should make you feel that you're not. Yeah. Self-care. It's a big one for both the caretaker and the person with depression. Mm-hmm. 
It's a big piece of the puzzle, I think. And I love the way that Chris, male Chris, said the most important thing in that moment is to get through the moment. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of, I can't remember, another guest, it was Sarah or Isabel, who said, if, if you can just get through this moment and then the next one and then the next one, you know, a shift takes place and you start to feel different. And it was interesting. They believe that by talking about it in that moment, you sort of stay stuck in it. And I had not heard that perspective before, so I really appreciated it. I know that that's true with other people in my life with different mental illnesses as well, um, particularly OCD and tics. Mm-hmm. Um, just just talking about it, just hearing about it, being asked, oh, you know, when's the last time? You, boom, it's triggered. Hmm. So, you know, it speaks to this is the brain. Right. And I like the way that she said, had she been able to talk about it earlier, she would feel stronger with her depression rather than weaker because she has it. And I know that we both feel, you know, more empowered since we've started talking about it. Right. I think it desensitizes um, me a little bit from it. It makes and, And then hearing how many other people are affected by it as well, directly or indirectly, makes me feel... Um, not, not that I would make the choice to be part of this tribe, but I do feel <laughs> part of a tribe. Mm-hmm. And any shame that you might have as a result of having depression or some fault um, definitely lessens when you realize that once you start talking about other people say, yeah, me too. Right. Which doesn't mean that you want to have it. No, it certainly does not. <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Chris and Chris. We really appreciate you sharing your story and interesting perspective with us. And how lucky they are to have one another. And how lucky they are to have one another. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice to have that kind of a support? Yes. (laughs) That kind of love. Yeah. Sweet. Beautiful. We hope that our podcasts bring about a little more understanding or help people articulate their experience of depression a little more. And thanks to each and every person who's digging deep and finding the words and finding the courage to give voice to depression. And you can find our podcasts on our website, givingvoicetodepression.com, as well as on iTunes, where we hope you will subscribe, rate, and respectfully comment. And please remember, if you're hurting, speak up. If someone else is hurting, listen up.